Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Lumina Hospice and Palliative Care End of Life Podcast. My name's Bob Madar, and in today's episode, we're going to spend our time talking with Dr. David Grube, a retired family practice physician who has had a long association with hospice as a physician, a caregiver to his parents, and a board member. Dr. Grube has a lot of experience working with people at the end of their lives, and I think you will find what he has learned most helpful for us as we seek to answer the question that is the focus of these podcasts. What can the experiences of patients near the end of their lives and the people who care for them and love them tell us about what is important in living and dying? I met with Dr. Grube at his home and began our discussion by asking him how his experiences as a physician led to his involvement with hospice. Well, um, I started practice a long time ago, over 40 years ago, and that was really at the onset of some of these modern technologies that really have changed the way we die. Uh, To be quite honest, when I started in practice, people got sick and died. I mean, they got Mm -hmm. pneumonia and we didn't have a fancy antibiotic for it. They had heart failure um, and we didn't have medicine for that. They got a heart attack and they got cancer. So I lived through the, the emergence of all this modern technology Interesting. Um, and saw that we, the situations around death changed from um, a situation of sort of an acute death to uh, a, as a tool called one day said, O-D-T-A-A, which is, stands for one damn thing after another. Mm-hmm. So currently when people get sick, Um, We have many wonderful modern technologies that help them, but it also prolongs this experience and um, their process uh, in in their decline uh, is is lengthened and it's not an acute falling off a cliff, it's uh, sliding down a a long, slow hill. So um, as as you see that, and I saw that kind of change over my first years of my practice, I realized that uh, it, and it didn't come to me all at once. I'm just mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. saying things, putting, compressing them, but that death really wasn't the problem. Really, the problem was suffering. That was what the problem it was. And so w- what, what we needed to do was not worry about people dying so much, but worry about keeping them from suffering. And the thing about that same time, 1980, 1981, I ran into this guy named Dave Cleaver, and he was starting a thing called Benton Hospice, and he was telling me about, you know, when people are dying and we can't help it, um, at least we can be there for them, comfort them, do all the things that hospice does. And so he was a mentor for me in that understanding that, wow, he's right, what we can do is alleviate suffering, Mm -hmm. and you know, the death will occur. And so that was in a sort of a short story of how I kind of figured it out. Before we started recording our conversation, Dr. Grude mentioned to me that both his parents were in hospice care when they died. I asked him how that personal experience informed his thinking about the role of hospice in reducing patient suffering at the end of life. Well, I had the blessing of, uh, before either of my parents got to their end, end part of their story, um, knowing about hospice, having been um, working in it, working, referring patients, being on the board, etc., etc. So when my 
mother who got colon cancer and then all the stuff that happens after that, um, and she was 90. Um, it was it was just a absolutely what we we should do get her right into that and and get support from my dad and, and support from me and my family mm-hmm. and my brothers and sisters. But um, my mother didn't come to the conclusion that she needed hospice. She didn't even really know. I don't think much about hospice, but because of my back understanding, it was just a natural thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, for me personally, as the son and. Uh, and my brothers and sisters and my father, it was, uh, it was just a, a, a very wonderful experience because um, uh, we had all the support all the way, as I mentioned, from mu- music to um, aides that sat with her when I would be, have to be at work and my wife was working at that time too. And my dad was floundering. He didn't know what to do to have someone mm-hmm. just sit, sit with her and be with her. Um, and there was just so many wonderful uh, aides and bath aides and, and respite caregivers. And then years, my dad, mom died. And then a few years later, my dad, uh, um, I think he died of the dwindles. And the dwindles is just everything. You know, he was 95 and he had heart failure. He had uh, lung failure. He had kidney failure. He had a, um, a, what's called a frozen pelvis from radiation. that meant nothing worked. He couldn't have bowel movement and he couldn't urinate. And so all of these things put in a big package. And, um, and then because of all those things and he became forgetful so hospice was a really natural for him as well um, and we were able to um, I think provide with him with um, a lot of comfort as as the sort of the things took their toll and mm-hmm. uh, um, so I think really you could say he died of old age but it was a mon- number of things right that kind of just added up mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. interesting so question do you think hospice is for everybody? Is that something that all people should do, or almost? almost I, I want to okay. say yes. I want to mm-hmm. say the answer is absolutely. I want to say yes because I really think if people could understand about hospice, uh, but um, we're, we we all have we all have a um, uh, uh, different personality types, and there is a subset of us who just don't want anybody around. We just want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. And so we as hospice workers, whether we're doctors, age or administrators, uh, or people listening to stories, we've got to remember it's not about us, it's about that person. Mm-hmm. And if that person says, no, I know what hospice is, I, I don't need the help, I don't want the help, I want to be left alone, uh, we should honor that. Do you, in your, in, your, in your long career, did you ever run up, up, up with patients um, at the end of their lives who were determined to fight it to the last moment? I mean, really fight the whole, you know, the, whatever illness they had, that you would basically keep going and going and going and don't give an inch. In other words. Oh, absolutely. Many, many, many times. Um, not rarely. I mean, there were a lot of people who, you know, never give up. Woods and Churchill never give up, never give up. Um, and, and that was their style, and I support that if that's what they... Would agree that they wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. I might not. I might know that what we were doing wasn't going to work. You know, one more surgery wasn't going to help, and I'd try to give them informed consent or informed um, understanding. But again, it's not about me. That's right. And about and them. so there were a lot of people that way. I think a bigger problem though is the family never wanting to give up. The patient either 
gave up and said, you know, I don't want any more of this. Just I'd like to back away now and, and just choose no treatment. But the family won't allow that. And the same situation, but the patient won't say it out loud. They're really getting everything done for them just to make their kids happy, their spouse happy, but they don't really want to do this. Um, those are harder, those are harder than the people who say never, because if you, you know, the default in our medicine in America is do everything. Right. And so yeah. if people never give up, that that matches up with what doctors do. Oh, right, know. it is a nice, yeah, yeah. very yeah. congruent. The, as more, the more, the more, the more, the more, uh, and, then, and then the light gets turned off and we move on to the next situation. So the, a more, more difficult situation is um, the family that um, the patient doesn't want to do it anymore, but the family does, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and again, and can, it can be pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. Or sad, or sadder story is where the patient doesn't want to do it anymore, but won't be honest, and will do it for you know they'll they'll do one more thing for the son that they haven't talked to in twenty years and flew in from Chicago. You know? mm-hmm. So, well, you know, it's interesting. I reflect back on my father when he had um, his terminal illness, and just before he had it. His uh, cardiologist wanted to um, replace his heart valves with pig valves, mm-hmm. and 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 it was open heart surgery. And Dad was like eighty one, and he had open heart surgery before for an aneurysm, and it took him a long time to recover. So I was talking to him, and I remember I said, "Dad, you know, this is hard to come back from." He said, "I know, but I have to do it." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "I have to be here to take care of your mom." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was. Wow, right. you know, I mean, it, it wasn't about him at all, right. you know, right. and and it's a very interesting thing that altruistic response, right, is 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 beautiful in mm-hmm. a sense, but it's also painful. Yeah, you know. Well, the other side of that coin would be in my mother and father's situation. Uh, my mom was uh, she probably had uh, some kind of variant of anorexia nervosa when she was a young woman. She was always ultra skinny, and mm-hmm. I mean, as a girl, even before they got married, and she never ate much. She was a little bird eater, and the, her whole life. Um, and so, she got colon cancer. It was through her whole body. She lost a lot of weight, and she died. Um, like I said, at ninety, probably weighed ninety pounds or wow. eighty-five pounds or something. And we would go then each year to the uh, uh, graveyard to visit her, and I'd take my dad, and and he would sit and look at the grave, and I'd leave him alone to talk to mom for a while, and then I'd come back, and he said, well, my dad said, well, you know, she'd still be here if I could have gotten her to eat. Oh, my. Oh, my. So he was, two, three years later, he was still feeling guilty that he caused her death because... And I would say, Dad, she was full of cancer. She was 90 years old. She had a, um, all these, there were many other problems she had. No, no, if I, a, if I could have just got, she never ate very well. If I could have just gotten her to eat, she'd still be here. That really brings that human, that, mm-hmm. that personal dimension mm-hmm. to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's the other, altru- it's this altruistic guilt. Mm-hmm. Like, you, from your, your dad wanted to be here to take care of your mom, my dad felt like, he failed my mother. Exactly. Would a would a recommendation be in some ways that if to have a peaceful death, you want to start planning for it? Yes, it would be way better if we talked about it years ahead. Oh yeah. And now with the other wonderful thing that we're beginning to see being employed is using um, some of the 
uh, electronic devices to have our wishes known so that you don't just write your advanced directive you know this don't put a feeding tube in me I don't want it no thank you um, that's a piece of paper and it looks kind of you can kind of ignore it but if you have uh, something you put on your iPad or your iPhone and you can show it to your doctor or show it to your family and say I can't speak anymore I had a stroke but this is what I told you I did or didn't want and when you're able to speak for yourself if you have it in living color you know. oh. so that's being used more and uh, so when you say is it, that would be like a video then right, right take a video you of yourself take a video of yourself say it, in the event that I can't speak for myself and I'm about I have whatever this is what I want and this is what I don't want mm -hmm. and it's it's the same as what you write on a piece of paper but there's total total difference between the doctor reading that and trying and, to interpret it right and you seeing it and listening and having that person speak really to the question. That's a really interesting point that um, that the actual video of the person is a very mm -hmm. powerful thing. Way more powerful than a piece of paper. So in, in some ways a, a major recommendation to people would be to have these conversations early. Absolutely. Document the heck out of them. Document it and advanced directives are traditionally what we've used mm -hmm. um, and they're very 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 important um, and you know, uh, many of us are working uh, to educate uh, patients to do that uh, these days, and hospices are working really hard in that arena. And they do the best job, but they're, it's a little bit late. I asked David if he knew of any resources to help people talk about their wishes for end-of-life care. So there are, there are programs, you know, Ellen Goodman, she's a was a journalist for the Boston Globe and she started mm -hmm. a thing called the Conversation Project. So you can mm. go online to www.conversationproject.org or, or .com and it gives you all the tools on oh, how, to, how to sit great. down at Thanksgiving dinner with your family and say, okay, here's, you know, this may seem macabre, but this is what's important. You know, in five years, five years is going to be here in a second and this is what we want for ourselves. And, and young people, you know, fill that out too. What a great yeah. idea! I was just wondering if you were, if you had somebody in front of you right now that was, you know, approaching the end of life. What kind of a conversation would you have with them? Well, I often structure it like, if if you know it's near death, uh, within weeks or whatever, um, to ask them what is what do they two two kinds of questions. One is, what is how would they envision their death? what would the right death for them be? Would it be mm -hmm. in the hospital? Would it be at home? Would it be with loved ones? Would it be alone? Would it be with music? Would it be with your dog? Would it be with your hospice nurse? Would it be out on a prairie? You know, what? how would you envision that last moment? What would be the your perfect vision? And then see if we could move toward that. And then, in the meantime, what if what is the best thing that you can imagine for yourself today? I mean, here we, ha here we are, um, what is it that you know you would like to do today and tomorrow? Because there's not very many more. Um, do you want to see your kids that one last time? Do you want to have you somebody carry you up to the top of Mary's Peak and look out one last time? Do you want to, you know, what are the things that matter the most to you? Um, I think, in my experience, the healthiest mind goes to a place of relationships of uh, being. Uh, of wanting to be 
with those loved ones who are the closest to them. Doesn't have to be family, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, the individuals and sometimes pets. Um, um, but I think we, you want to ask, what do you? How do you envision your last, your death, and what is it? What is a perfect day for you now? What does it look like? Yeah, I know you're. You can't breathe, and you're on oxygen, and you're missing your right leg. But um, in those, and that's it. What's what would be the best thing we could do? And then, you know, if it's chocolate ice cream, let's have chocolate ice cream. My dad was told when he was 95 that he was diabetic, and he said, uh, "Gosh, it means I can't have any more candy bars." And I said, "No, Dad, I mean that. It means you're diabetic. You can have many candy bars as you want. It's a, you know, you aren't going to be 295." You're near the end of your life, so enjoy them, have them, and, and that's another thing I think. Um, you know, I think Atul Gawande said in that book that you quoted, "We want autonomy for ourselves, but we want safety for others." Mm. And we're mm -hmm. always making the mistake of, in particularly dying patients, of picking the safe choice for them. Like, oh no, oh. don't don't have that candy bar because your butcher might go up a little bit, rather than let's eat a candy bar together and let's have a celebration and light a candle and and praise Did you like some chocolate syrup on it? Right. <laughs> yeah. it, that's really interesting. It reminds me when I was a long time ago, and I was a grad student at OSU, and I uh, went in to the infirmary, I had a bad cold, and he took my blood pressure, and I was probably 35, and he said, lay down. He took my blood pressure again, and he said, um, "No, it's a little high here, you know, for somebody your age." And then he asked me some of what I do, and I said, "Well, you know, I chew tobacco." He said, "Well, you'll just stop that. If I were you, I'd stop it today." And I said, "Oh, okay, I will." And he said, "Listen," he said, "I have a private practice outside of the infirmary here," and he said. Um, I get these guys coming to my office, they're 75, and they say, should I worry about cholesterol? And I say, no, right. don't worry about it, eat all the cholesterol they want. Yeah, not when you're 75, right? <laughs> yeah, he said, but you guys, right. 35, this is now time right. for you to pay attention to this right. because right. It, it's an issue. Yeah. And, and I thought that was such an interesting perspective, and I think what you just said is, is so true, is that in some ways I think people get in this mindset of we gotta protect, and not realize, no, we at some point, we've got to have fun. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, the and and right along on that same thing, you know, chewing tobacco when you're 35 isn't about death. It's about suffering again, because you're going to get cancer of the jaw, and you're going to have to have your jaw taken off, and you're going to um, get um, bladder cancer, and you're going to have to have a tube put in, and you can't ever pee again. You know. It, so it, it isn't just if you keep chewing tobacco, you're going to fall over dead one day. Right. You're going to. Which maybe you should keep chewing tobacco. That's the case. <laughs> you know, but, but it's no, that's true, all yeah. the awful things that happen. Mm -hmm. There's, mm -hmm. It's just awful stuff that's going to happen that's going to accumulate. And, um, and it's going to accumulate earlier and it's going to be worse than if you didn't. If so, you didn't. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And in fact, one of the things from the, the book, um, Being Mortal, that I thought was really interesting was, you know, sort of having that realistic discussion of, look, we can do this intervention, and there is a 10% chance that right. you'll improve, but there's a 90% chance that you're right. going to end up in the ICU, you're going to be intubated, you're not going to be, and then you're going to die at very unpleasant death. Yeah, yeah, you and know. that's what we doctors need to do a better job of. It isn't that we shouldn't just keep offering everything. We should let the patient know, yes, there are five more things you could do, like for your mom, yes, we could put this tube in, and the doctor should have said, 
yes, we should put this tube in. It is possible that you'll get better for a week or two, you know, before we get back to the situation again. Um, and do you want to? Right. And um, rather than you're going to get better with this tube, because that's thinking for the next six hours, not a week from now, a month from now, we're still going to be, you know, all the other things that she had wrong with her, she's still going to have wrong with her. Mm-hmm. Not, those mm-hmm. aren't going to go away. They're so. not going to go away. Yeah. So that, so absolutely. I think we're good. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Is there anything that's come up for you right now that you feel you really, really think would be a, something you'd like to say? Well, I, I yeah, I just am a big, huge supporter of hospice. I think the movement has changed so much. I mean, now if you look at the the end of life experiences people are having, they're so in Oregon, particularly, um, they're better because of hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a big proponent of choice, and I think aid, medical aid in dying is a absolutely uh, n- should be normalized as a standard of care in medicine, and and it is in Oregon, but it isn't in most states. And mm-hmm. I would hope that that would be something that we could move toward. Well, as Treebeard said in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, that was a bundle of news and no mistake. What have we learned from Dr. Groob that will help us answer our question about what is important in living and dying? It seems to me there are several things we should consider. One, the issue at the end of life is often not death itself, but prolonged suffering. Two, sometimes... Patients may agree to treatment, even when they personally would rather not have it. And three, it's really important to have the conversation with loved ones about what your desires are at the end of life, well in advance of needing treatment, and to make sure that your wishes are well documented. Well, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll return for Episode 7 when we'll spend our time talking with Jolene, a hospice volunteer. I personally found her comments about what she has gained from working with people at the end of life inspirational and thought-provoking, and I hope you will too. For more information, visit luminahospice.org.